Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The big story we've been following all week has been that of the shooting in Buffalo, New York. And once again, the shooting seemed to follow an all-too-familiar path of online radicalization and planning leading to violence. In this case, the shooter acted as a lone wolf, but despite not having a direct collaborator, he did have an online pack. The shooter's ideology is shared by others, whether it be those who subscribe to the Great Replacement Theory or creators of the memes that influenced him. For more on how, despite acting solo, the shooter is not alone, We'll speak to Juliet Kayyem, former Assistant Secretary for Homeland Security. You know, there's two stories here. So one is, of course, the shooter and who he was and what he had tried to do before. And why didn't they, you know, why didn't his sort of previous activity we're learning now that he had threatened to shoot at his school, you know, raise any alarms and access to a gun. So those are very specific issues. They are important. They are important to the victims. I am not dismissing that and that he faces the justice that he deserves. But it's too easy to say he acted alone. He was a solo shooter. or He was in the in the, you know, the, the language that we've come to use, the lone wolf. I've been in counterterrorism and homeland security a long time. A lone wolf was just a way that we used to separate it from the sort of more organized attacks, say like a 9-11 type attack or an ISIS attack. And it just seemed to me that language was failing us, given the kind of hatred and racially motivated, violent extremism that we're seeing. And so I started this piece that I had in The Atlantic that I think struck a nerve in some ways. It sort of, if you actually think about lone wolves, they are not dangerous. The, the wolves are a pretty mundane animal. Their success actually comes in the fact that they only, uh, that they kill in packs. And that's exactly what this shooter had. And it's not a traditional pack, but it's one that was supporting, aiding, pushing, giving him comfort, making him think he had his people. That's yeah. an online phenomenon uh, and one that, you know, led to him videotaping the shooting. And I want to be clear you know, look, there's lots of people who have horrible opinions that I don't agree with. The great replacement theory is fundamentally a theory about violence. You really, there's no sort of benign interpretation of it. It is one in which the belief is based on a belief that the pie is limited and that the presence of, in this case, black Americans took 
the white American, in this case, the shooter, uh, w- was threatening his place at the table. And so and this is what he wrote about. This is what he perceived. This is what is amplified by members of the GOP, by top media officials who tease it, but don't really say right. what they mean. And that is exactly where we are. That replacement is a term of violence. It is uh, it is it's either me or you. And in this case, he decided it was going to be him. Right. And so and so all of these things together really reinforce force a lot of these ideologies and and you know when we look at right. even the manifesto that the shooter posted online you know a lot of many pages of that were memes and and, and you know the, yeah. just you know so whether he created those or not you know i think uh, they were probably coming from a lot of other places right but that's what those people believe enough to make the meme and make fun of what that situation is and then going beyond that he's you know taking in so much of that that it starts warping his mind into that. And so that's, uh, you know, obviously right. people have talked a lot about social media and the, and the how that plays a part into all this. And, and it's definitely true. And then to the other point, right, the white replacement theory, the great replacement theory, it's kind of reinforced in subtle ways. And yeah. people don't like to say yeah. it outright, but all of this kind of starts to warp a person's mind. And, and now is the trying to understand how it happened to him. Not to get too wonky here, but there's a term in terrorism and counterterrorism called stochastic terrorism. It's, it's the use of language to incite random acts of violence. So they're not saying do this on this date against these people. What leaders do is they're sort of coy enough in their language. And I think that's what we see in the political and media space now, that they'll talk of grievance, of displacement, of fighting, all the language, right? What's rightfully mine is being taken away, the scourge of other, of the other. And they don't have to say do something, right? They don't have to say do this on that date, but it creates a totally predictable line to violence. And I think it's really important that we, those people who see it and all of us who are, are obviously not on this side. I call it for what it is, uh, because, you know, it has to be shamed. I mean, these people are getting away with this kind of violent extremism. And I'm just absolutely clear about that's what this is. It is not there's no benign. Again, there's no benign theory of why someone is espousing the Great Replacement as a grievance. There's no other way to interpret it. It's not like, oh, OK, that's fine. And it is literally a call to arms. Yeah. A call for the hunt, as I, as I wrote. It's a call for the hunt, and that's what happened. He drives a couple hundred miles. He, he finds a place where his prey are in big numbers. He essentially says this, and he's on a hunt. Yeah, uh, just again, you know, another unfortunate situation with a lot, you know, all too familiar in a lot of ways now. We see uh, the warning signs. There wasn't anything acted upon them. And then things like this happen. And again, the online radicalization part of it. So we'll keep learning more about this situation and, and explore all of that. Juliet Kayyem, former Assistant Secretary for Homeland Security under President Obama and faculty chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Also in question with all of this, New York has a red flag law in the books that should have prevented the shooter in Buffalo from buying the firearm he used in the assault. In 2021, when the gunman was still a minor, he was flagged for making comments about murder-suicide at school and taken in for a mental health evaluation. Not deemed a risk at the time, he was let go and no continued effort was made to keep guns out of his hands. For more on what went wrong in this case, we'll speak to Melissa Chan, Reporter at NBC News. New York's red flag law was enacted in 2019. It empowers 
school administrators, including teachers, law enforcement officials, prosecutors, and family members to pursue court intervention when they believe they know someone who is at high risk of harming themselves or others. Under the law, a judge could very quickly issue what's called an extreme risk protection order. And by doing that, it would mean that this person who is at high risk would not be able to purchase any firearms. If they already have a firearm, they would have to surrender those firearms and they would have to, the the law would also bar them from any attempts at possessing or purchasing firearms. Now, my understanding is that there is a pretty high barrier of evidence needed. You need to have a lot of solid stuff to go on this to be able to ban the person. Now, let's get into the specific situation. At the time when he was flagged and and they did take him in for mental health evaluation, apparently it was a teacher that asked him, you know, what are your plans for after school, after you graduate? And he said something to the effect of murder-suicide. That's what triggered the whole thing. Right. That's right. So it was June 2021. The school year was coming to an end. And when a teacher asked the class their plans, he had made comments that he wanted to murder and commit suicide. At this very chilling remark, the teacher alerted law enforcement, which detained the suspect and subjected him to a mental evaluation. But he was ultimately cleared, which paved the way for him to legally buy the rifle that he's accused of using in the shooting just 11 months later. And the governor of New York has asked for an investigation into what's going on through all this. But so far, what we've heard is, you know, just him just saying that isn't specific enough. You know, it wasn't a threat Mm -hmm. made at a person or the school even itself. And that's kind of where we're stuck, right? It wasn't enough to trigger the next part, right, which would be a court proceeding to uh, ban him from being able to purchase and own guns. Right. So the governor said at a hearing from um, state police that there was nothing, quote unquote, actionable that could have been done. Not a specific threat, but experts say you don't need a specific threat to trigger this law. The fact is that no official involved in the investigation in June initiated a court process that could have helped prevent the suspect from buying the rifle. Yeah. And, you know, obviously this is so tough and hindsight is twenty twenty, right? But this is exactly what this type of law is set up for. And he was flagged. And unfortunately, he was cleared. And then again, obviously, unfortunately, he carried out a mass attack, right? But, you know, and the questions now arise, what happens? And I know a lot of uh, local lawmakers in there, there in New York are saying, well, now is the time to see what went wrong and, and if there's any adjustments to the law. Today, I'll be signing an executive order requiring the state police to file an extreme risk order of protection under New York's red flag law. I would think qualifying for a mental health evaluation should at least trigger some type of ban for a limited amount of time. I'd also be curious if they just did kind of a quick check in with him there at the hospital or did they dig into social media and other things which, you know, he had an online presence. Maybe they could have gleaned some more off of that. So how deep the search goes when something like this is initiated is also in question. Exactly. Those are the questions that the governor has asked for answers to what exactly transpired there, what led them to determine he was not a threat, what led them to determine he could be cleared. These are all questions that have still not been answered. What has been uh, the reaction from uh, 
gun safety advocates and even gun proponents now, uh, you know, in this, because the discussion also also becomes part, well, do these uh, red flag laws even save people? And I think in New York, they've had uh, 1,464 extreme risk protection orders go into place since the law was enacted. So they say, yes, uh, this has protected people. That is very right. Since the law was implemented in the summer of 2019, more than 1,400 extreme risk protection orders have been issued. In the first year alone, there were 530 orders issued. And while there's no way to really measure whether any one order helps avoid a specific tragedy, experts cite peer-reviewed evidence that shows that red flag laws in Indiana and Connecticut have prevented gun deaths, including suicides and homicides. What went wrong here, experts are saying is, you know, it could have been because the state police might have not known about the red flag law and their, you know, ability to ask for the court order, or they might have just not done a deep enough investigation to find any evidence that warranted them to do that. Yeah. And, you know, and a person that's subject to this is obviously going to lie. They're going to be manipulative if they can. Right. right? So you mm-hmm. can't necessarily trust a person. So, again, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. It's awful to go back and say, well, this should have been done. But in this case, if he was caught under this red flag law, this specific one could have been uh, avoided because it was less than a year. So a lot of tough things to go through and really see what happened. Melissa Chan, reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Pent up inflation could be the next thing driving costs higher. 
consumers have largely been shielded from the full brunt of expenses that producers, distributors, and small businesses have faced. Especially in the restaurant industry, they have been hesitant to raise prices too much, but as their costs increase, something has got to give. Case in point, a Mississippi restaurant had to start listing their order of 15 wings as market price, and it comes to almost a cost of $28. For more on why even higher prices could still be on their way, we'll speak to Amy Yee, reporter at Bloomberg News. That was a restaurant owner in Jackson, Mississippi, and the price of chicken wings, that means his cost when he's buying it wholesale, it just skyrocketed last year. So normally those that plate of hot wings, it's like 15 wings, wouldn't cost like $15. And when his cost for chicken went up, he had to price it almost at 30. It was probably $28. But that was actually lower than his real cost. His real cost was closer to $34, but they don't want to price it at the real cost because right. you know, $34 <laughs> for chicken wings is a lot. Yeah, $30 no. is a lot. But no, So they were actually giving the customer a little break there. Yeah, nobody's going to go for something like that, especially if you're a regular, right, and you're just seeing how crazy the price is. But, you know, at that point, each wing is $2, uh, and that's pretty insane. There at the restaurant, they're even toying with the idea, let's just take it off the menu because of that's the, right. the cost and the margins are so thin. Okay, so now let's talk about some of the reasonings. Uh, we look at the consumer price index as a, a measure for inflation for us, for the consumer. But there's the producer price index, which is a slightly different number, and that's been ticking up. And in the example that you just gave of the restaurant, we've been shielded from those true costs right now because businesses don't want to put prices so high that people aren't buying things. And this is kind of what's coming up next. That's right. So the origins of this story was that last year, even last fall, when I was talking to restaurant owners about their costs for buying things like cooking oil, chicken, flour, broccoli, very basic things, their costs were already up 100%, sometimes 200%, sometimes more. Um, I mean, it ranged. But um, that was what I was hearing. Even in October, it got worse through the winter. Those were their soaring costs even before this latest surge of inflation that consumers really see at the gas pump. So they were already um, operating on skyrocketing costs. And now in the last four or five months, fuel prices, as we know, when you go to the gas pump, it's much higher. The producers' costs have, have um, increased as well. You know, the farmers need to pay for fuel. They have fertilizer shortages. They're growing less. We also have avian flu that has killed about 10% of the U.S. chickens. And that's only been recently. So, you know, we have a backlog of inflation that started that I was hearing about in the fall and then compounded with even more factors recently. So, you know, what we're seeing now with prices that are a bit higher at the supermarket or restaurants, 7%, that's the average menu price increase. Yeah. It's actually much higher and it's probably going to go up more. Right, exactly. And, you know, you're talking about some of these jumps. The eggs surged 220% for some of these on the wholesale side of things, right? And so, uh, yes. as you mentioned, it, the things kind of just keep trickling down. So why is it that, you know, in this, that we're hitting this delay right now? Obviously, I know you're, you're pointing to all these things, but if you can put it together for us, we're looking at something that could start happening in the coming months. As these things keep ticking up for producers, that's going to change that consumer price index. And, you know, they're already so high right now, can't imagine it going more, but this is the worry that it's going to push it up in the next few months. 
So last year we were experiencing supply chain issues. So that's the buzzword of the year, supply chain. Things were backlogged from ports, goods getting off of docks. Um, there weren't enough workers. You know, this is during COVID. So you had a labor shortage with just not enough workers to even drive things. There's a shortage of truck drivers. That's the part of the supply chain we don't see. They're driving things you know, like food and other ingredients from warehouses to um, stores and restaurants. There's a labor shortage. So those were all factors from last year um, when we were um, seeing a shutdown during COVID. And then uh, demand from consumers spiked for different things as, you know, they were they were doing shopping online or whatnot. So actually demand then also increased, you know, when when things um, started getting better, improving when we were coming out of the lockdown. So there was already a backlog yeah. from the supply chain. And then plus all these other issues just at the producer level connected to that supply chain shortage was fertilizer. So, you know, shortage of, of fertilizer being manufactured and then, you know, shipped to farmers who needed yeah. to grow. And then lately there's been, especially in the U.S., there's been terrible weather, drought and dry weather, um, wheat supplies, wheat production is probably going to go down like 20%. <laughs> Yeah, um, and that's just, just in the last few months. It's just so hard to catch back up, you know, after being down yeah. so long. And so when we look at solutions, these are the things that are vexing economists and, uh, you know, the administration, obviously. But when we're looking at solutions, what are they planning? What are they trying to do? It's very tough because you will hear lots about trying to raise interest rates from the Fed. So they're, they're trying to slow down demand from consumers. But people still need to eat. And uh, it's hard to get around a demand for flour. You're needed for bread. You need it for pizza, like right, pizza yeah. dough, everything. So uh, in the past, there may have been some kinds of substitutes, but now there are pressures across the board for all kinds of things that you might have used to, like, let's say, offset a price hike in wheat. So the Fed is trying to tamp down demand with increasing interest rates, but they can't help with growing wheat or raising chickens. Yeah, so demand might slow down as prices increase, but there's a fundamental problem with supply. Exactly. And I'll just mention one more thing is that restaurants, they are hurting because although customers are coming back, their costs have, have gone up. So they can't keep pace with just diminishing margins. So they will ask for an increase in, a, in, a, in federal funding. It's called the Restaurant Revitalization Fund. And that helped them during the pandemic. And, and they're asking for that to be topped up. Amy Yee, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. 
In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.